At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Greg Peterson here, and welcome to the 265th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where three days a week we work together educating and inspiring you to become part of your food revolution. Nature doesn't waste energy, and by using natural cycles to work in our favor, we can harvest both plants and fish. Let us teach you how. Just text GROWFISH to 33444 or visit IWANTTOGROWFISH.COM and you will receive our free webinar on how to grow your own fish-powered garden. Today on our podcast, we have someone who helps others learn how to use nature's energy to build their own part of the food revolution. We're talking to Kateen Fitzgerald about designing dynamic food systems. Kateen is a tree of many branches. She's a design consultant, mentor, teacher, farmer, gardener, and mom. After 20 years of teaching and mentoring, she decided to create something more. In 2007, she purchased 40 acres of land near Port Townsend, Washington, and built Compass Rose Farms, a bio-intensive family farm and homestead. Two years later, she began an internship program to teach modern homesteading, holistic animal wifery, and regenerative food systems. Effectively converting the farm into a permaculture demonstration site, she then founded the Dirt Rich School, a nonprofit education program dedicated to empowering people to live in abundance and thrive in a changing world. Welcome to the show today, Katine. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Sure. As a kid, I grew up around my grandparents who always gardened and were managing the land around their home. Mm -hmm. And my mom always grew a garden and canned our own food. And when my parents were married, they moved up to British Columbia, Canada, grew a big garden. Yeah. Lived kind of sustainably and off the land to the best of their ability. And that was a huge influence in my life. In fact, my mom was a huge influence and still is in my life. And as I got a family and, well, even before that, when I was in high school, my mom got sick of doing the yard. And so I offered to take over doing the yard. And that was my first garden. So I think I've been working 28 consecutive seasons in my life in the landscape. Yeah, And that was an empowering moment for me to take over the landscape around our house and look at what my mom had done and how I would shift it. And so I ended up getting married and having a small family. And everywhere I went, I put in a new landscape and a new garden and Mm. learned a lot about doing that. I became an organic gardener and then later on a Colorado State Master Gardener. 
and continued to shift that gardening gardening using raised bed intensive systems. I learned uh, French market gardening and continued to kind of evolve through through a number of different styles. And at some point, I just kind of felt like I had gone off into some form of feral gardening where I was integrating so many different dynamics from different things mm. I've read or experienced that I really kind of got lost and thought, I need to find my people. I need to figure out who's doing what I'm doing and yeah. how to get more mentors and get more connected and find out what the rest of the resources are because I've kind of felt alone. Uh-huh. And I did some research and I looked at biodynamics and I looked at permaculture and I looked at a number of different systems and I really felt like permaculture had more answers for the things that we're facing right now ecologically and with food and just how to reintegrate back into a realistic version of the landscape and how we can put our human culture back in partnership with nature Mm -hmm. and ended up going down that route and felt like I did find my people and I found more mentors and I found more books and I found more Uh, information and I felt like I was part of a bigger uh, movement at that point. And, and that really instigated me shifting what is a piece of farm property and a family homestead into a school and teaching Mm. permaculture and shifting the landscape into a much more natural system. My idea of being a feral gardener fits so well into (laughs) permaculture. And permaculture felt very much like an aha moment, but also a, well, of course, you know, I felt like this is common sense and this is where I've been going. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. In 1991, I did my first permaculture design course and I was 30, I was 30 years old at the time. And I tell people that my forehead was sore because I kept smacking myself in the head saying, oh my gosh, this is it. Where has it been? How come I've had to wait 30 years? Right. Why didn't I not see this earlier? Right. And how, long is, how long have I been missing this? Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm here to share those experiences with everyone else <laughs> Nice. as we are teaching here on on this site and opening up the eyes of many people to be partnering with their landscapes. Beautiful. So I have a whole bunch of questions from your intro. First of all, can you define permaculture for us? Oh, that's like the most difficult question to ask anyone. I know, but you've been through. We should all have, go ahead. No, please. We should all have a beautiful elevator speech that just sums up what we do. And yet that's actually one of the most scary questions to be asked as a permaculturist and also to even admit that that's a difficult question. Yeah. Um, So here's the, here's the thing though. You've done a permaculture design course and we're going to talk more about here in a little while. Permaculture design courses are called PDC. It's a 72 hour immersion course to learn permaculture. So you've done a permaculture design course. So go. (laughs) Um, I think of permaculture as a collection of all the best ideas humanity has come up with in addition Mm. to uh, the integration of different sciences and cultural wisdom. Mm-hmm. And and it felt like when I was learning it, it was like a snowball rolling downhill, collecting all the best ideas. And at the bottom oh. of the hill, you have this giant snowball yeah. of all the best pieces. And 
permaculture stands for permanent culture. Right. And it encompasses everything we need as humanity uh, to have our needs provided for. It provides our energy and our food systems, mm-hmm. our social structures, our culture. And all of those things have been interacted with and worked with for centuries and now we're looking at that going what's the best of the best what makes us sustainable what helps us move forward into a future that we can be proud of and what helps us integrate with the ecology as a whole and begin to bring healing between humanity and the earth itself and that's the thing I love about permaculture. We're asking ourselves, what's the best that we've come up with uh-huh. and how can we do it better and how can we do it all together? So we are working towards a common goal. So I'm going to stop you right here and say that was epic. That was eloquent. You did an incredible job. Nothing you should be afraid of. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So how did you discover permaculture? Well, I think I read my first permaculture book in about 2004. I think it was Permaculture 2. And I read it and I thought, this is for the tropics. It's a lot of really great ideas. I just don't see it working where I live. And kind of set it aside and didn't pick it up again for a number of years. Uh-huh. And then, like I said, I was went looking for my people. Figured I wasn't <laughs> alone out here. Yeah. And uh, when I went looking, there was so much more on the internet and so Mm -hmm. many more books available and so much more information and more information about temperate permaculture. And that's when it really sparked in me that this was a viable direction to go. This was something worth researching and getting into. So I began to do all the reading I could find. Mm -hmm. I bought every book that was recommended and when I devoured all of the books then I got on the internet and I devoured everything I can find on there Mm -hmm. and all the videos and eventually I thought you know I just really need to get my PDC Um, a lot of it had been things I was already using in our garden systems here and felt like I really wanted to be able to teach this as part of the program we were already using. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, I felt I needed to have a PDC and legitimize the education right. that I'd already given myself. So um, I went looking for a PDC, found the one that I wanted, took it. And then from there thought, if I'm teaching, I really need a permaculture teacher's training. So ah. I went and pursued, pursued taking classes for a permaculture teacher's yeah. training. And once I felt that I'd finished that, I felt, no, this is good. I'm going to, I'm going to start giving a PDC and sharing this knowledge very formally. So we now do a PDC here on site. Nice. So, and, and this PDC, is it just for locals or can anybody come in and take it? Anybody can come in and take it. We've had people come in from all over the world to take the programs here. Um, all over the United States is more common. Um, our PDC is, uh, got two potential components. You can either come in and take a three-month internship with us where you're using the landscape and you're working 40 hours a week with me for three months. And we're really into the applied part of it, uh, working with the landscaping with animal husbandry. We're working Uh with um, market gardening. We're working with all kinds of Um, systems in the garden, and then it includes that PDC as part of it. Your other option is to come in as uh, a local person or someone staying here for three months Mm -hmm. that wants to come weekly and take the the lecture part of the series um, that's here. And you can either do it as just the lecture series, but if you want your design certificate, you, it includes 15 hours in the 
in the garden. demonstration site nice. so that you're really into the applied portion. Excellent. Well, thank you for that. So for, if somebody's interested and wants to get more information on that, where do they find information at? You can go to the dirtridgeschool.org and look at the internship Perfect. or the permaculture design course page cool. there. Cool. And we'll have that on our show notes when we when we get there. So, Perfect. So what is, a, this is a fascinating question to me, what is a cultivated ecosystem and what does it look like? A cultivated ecosystem. I love that term. I don't know where I first heard it, but mm -hmm. as soon as I heard it, I thought that's what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. That's the best name I could come up with for the system that we're working in here on the site. Um, cultivated ecosystem, every portion of this uh, system is designed. It's intentional. Mm -hmm. Every element, each of the plants and animals that's there is pulled in as a chosen thing. And yet it uses the biomimicry of an e looking at an ecosystem and saying, well, there's trees, there's shrubs, there's ground cover, there's bushes, there's uh, life in the soil web, uh, food web, and there's animals that are dynamically interacting with this system. Mm -hmm. And so we have created an environment where we didn't segregate the trees into an orchard and we didn't segregate, segregate our vegetables into a little vegetable garden, etc. cetera. Um, we've actually integrated all those pieces like you would see in nature. So we have trees growing inside of the garden system. We have perennials and annuals. We have herbs and flowers working together dynamically mm -hmm. and ground covers, mushroom systems, and wow. animals. So they, some of the animals that are in our system are birds, ducks, and geese, and we can talk further about the animals that are working the system. But we also include in that all the wildlife that interacts with our garden oh, right. and welcoming and more complicating and more biodiversity of creatures because we are working with pulling in wildlife um, and lots of different dynamics. So that is what I would call a cultivated mm -hmm. ecosystem where we're not segregating, we're integrating, and we're moving towards diversity rather than simplicity. So, so, excellent. Thank you for that. Somebody listening to what you just said might step back and say, what, excuse me, you want to pull in wildlife. What's that about? Because most of the time we're trying to get rid of wildlife out of our garden because they eat our, you know, eat our chickens, they eat our, uh, you know, plants. So tell me more about that. Sure. Some of the wildlife we're working with are wild birds. Mm -hmm. So we do include the wild birds as part of our system by feeding them, providing roosts and fencing areas around mm. the garden that they can land on. And when a bird lands on a fence and takes off, they drop manure. Yeah. And the wild bird manure is high in phosphorus, one of the fertilizers that we would uh. normally be purchasing and bringing into our garden. So by increasing the number of perches and branches and fencing um, in our garden area, we will be collecting phosphorus passively. Uh-huh. We have pollinators, lots of different types of pollinators mm -hmm. that we encourage from the bee, which is not really a domestic animal, so it's somewhat on the wild side. But also we have butterflies and mason bees and wasps, mm -hmm. um, surfeit flies, and we encourage them by planting different types of flowers mm -hmm. and different plants that they like. And we also help them by creating little stick piles and rubbish piles of weedy stuff that they can put eggs into. So we're encouraging uh. 
are pests. Yeah. And by bringing a diversity of different types of bugs and insects, we don't worry about bringing in bad bugs versus good bugs. There's no bad bugs and good bugs in the garden. There's just insects. Right. And they monitor their own population and keep it in balance by having diversity. Excellent. So really what you're building here, and this goes back to the cultivated ecosystem concept, you're looking at really mimicking a forest or building a food forest in place. Yes. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. So in in reading your bio and in reading some of the questions you sent over, one of the things that I noticed is is that there's, we have a lot of languaging that's, um, you know, that's similar. Uh, I, I often have for years called myself a lazy gardener or a lazy farmer. Uh, one of my favorite things to work with uh, in my yard is weeds. And, you know, you, you sent over this question, what is working with the weeds and what is the 80-20 rule of weeding? Tell us the story behind that because this is fascinating. So working with the weeds is something that I've kind of taken on as a as a passion uh-huh. and um, I encourage people to observe the weeds that you have in your garden that are coming up that you spend most of your garden time often most of your garden time is spent weeding so let's yeah. observe which weeds are coming up in our gardens let's identify them there is actually a very limited number of weeds that you're going to be interacting with mm-hmm. let's take some pictures let's look up their names let's look up their properties how many of those weeds can you eat how many of those weeds have medicinal properties, either mm-hmm. as food or some other form? And how many of those weeds are actually really hard to pull yeah. and deal with? You'll find that the majority of the weeds that you have in your garden aren't that hard to get out and might actually be helping you if you step back and approach them a little differently. And I've come up with this idea of the 80-20 rule of weeding, uh-huh. where we've applied that in lots of ways that... of the problem is caused by 20% of the situation. So let's take a look at weeds through that lens. I've created a hit list for weeds, and it's a principle. So you're going to put your own plants into this list. But the first thing I look at in my garden is grass. And the first number one on my hit list is grasses. So if I were to do nothing else, I would just weed grass. Mm -hmm. And I would ignore the rest of the plants growing in my ecosystem and just get the grass out. It's kind of top of the hit list. It is causing a lot more trouble than most of the weeds. It's difficult to get out. Uh So first one is your grasses. Your second one on the list is anything that's poisonous to people or animals. So mm-hmm. we have right. in ours deadly nightshade and tansy and um, poison hemlock. We have So your list is going to be different. It'll be regional to what might be poisonous. So that's the second thing that if you get nothing else out, those have to come out. Mm-hmm. We don't want kids or someone mistaking one of those for food. The third thing is anything that sticks or stings, which can be stinging nettle, thistles, mm berry bushes that aren't intended to be there. Right. And then the next group are things that are difficult to pull or invasive. And again, the list for you will be different than for your neighbor or for someone in a different region. Mm -hmm. So you're going to make a list of things that are really hard to get out. And those can be dandelion or dock or certain kinds of ground covery plants like bindweed. And you're just going to make a list of those guys. And if Mm -hmm. you have very little time, you're going to go in and go after those. What happens when you start using this hit list, the 80-20 rule, is you'll find that as you remove with the little bit of time and energy you have, the ones that are causing the most trouble 
what will happen is the ones that aren't causing trouble are going to seed and reproduce and fill in the gaps. And the ones that are causing trouble won't have an opportunity to seed. And over time, you'll have fewer and fewer weeds that are really difficult to deal with. Right. And the ones that are left, you could look at, say, chickweed. Wonderful mm-hmm. food grows in most regions of the United States in gardens. And and look at that one as maybe helping you. Yeah. It's a ground cover, it retains moisture, it's a food. There's a number of plants that are easy to pull and will fill in the spaces between the garden plants and not be causing any difficulty. Purslane is another one. Many oh, of these yeah. are more, more nutritious than the lettuce that we're planting <laughs> and so hard to protect. I know. So that's some of the some of the systems that we're using here on the farm is using our energy more wisely, being yeah. a little bit lazier and being a little okay with the ground being covered with a lot of different plants um, that we may not have planted, but are working to help us retain moisture and yeah. stability, especially over the winter months when we're not out there using the land, but we've left a certain group of weeds to winter mm-hmm. over. Uh, purple dead nettle is our favorite winter cover crop. I don't buy the seed, I don't plant it, and it comes up and goes away just perfect timing for covering in the fall and winter and then basically it dies out in the early spring about planting time yeah well the one cool thing about weeds is that they're also pioneer species so they have a tendency to show up first they grow very vigorously and they do a lot of mining of nutrients out of the soil so one of my tips for people is i actually cut the weed off just below ground level can't do this with grasses, but I cut the weed off just below ground level and I leave the roots in to compost and then, you know, the rest is chicken feed. Yeah, kind of combination of an idea of dynamic accumulators, which is a concept where plant is able to mine down below the soil, right. uh, deep nutrients that other plants might not be accessing, store them in their bodies, and then when they fall on the surface and decay, making them available both to the soil food web and to other plants. Yeah. Um, the other thing is is being able to chop and drop, which is a term often used on big trees um, in the tropics, but mm-hmm. I find using chop and drop on a smaller scale in my garden where I yep. have a little um, Japanese hoe and just go through and scratch the tops off of everything right. and leave it right in place. Don't haul it to compost. Don't haul it back. Just let it be there as ground cover decomposing right yeah. there underneath of my plants. Yay. I, I, you know, I really like the way you think. <laughs> so given that, I, I, I've got a wild card question here for you. It's kind of on this list, and it's, it revolves around being a lazy farmer. So I know you gave me one tip which I'm sure you'll include in this list, but I want three tips on being a lazy farmer. Three tips on being a lazy farmer. My favorite lazy farmer tip is about composting. So I got one of those pretty common urban black plastic composter. It's a bit of a angled smaller at the top and larger at the bottom, about the size of a trash can, pretty common. And I put that outside my door, so lazy that I could walk out my door and dump my compost in it um, from my porch without stepping on the soil. And I left the lid off of it and I dumped 
all of my kitchen scraps and it was a bit lazy like I would put bread in there and things you're not supposed right. to compost yep. and I would even put some sketchy refrigerated cleanings in there and just to see what happened because it was really a test uh -huh. and I also added all of my junk mail and packaging scrappy paper so oh, right. nothing real cardboardy like I didn't use cardboard from say a chips or cereal box I, I recycled that but anything from my office waste or anything I could crumple up went in there egg cartons went in there um, receipts went in there just all kinds of things I wasn't really worried about inks which is a question people ask me mm -hmm. um, some of them are biodegradable but microorganisms are incredible about breaking down uh, you know, chains of chemicals right. and things like that. And, yeah. and mushrooms are breaking things down. Mm -hmm. And I just have a lot of honor for their ability, whether I scientifically understand their skill set from that perspective or not. I just really feel faith in, in their ability to break down things. So I added these things in layer and I did not empty that composter or use any of it for three years. And wow. my daughter is a vegetarian and often a vegan. And so she produces a lot more vegetable matter waste than than some other people might. Mm -hmm. And so we continue to do that. And over time, I thought, you know, it's time to break into this thing and find out what I've got. And when I did, I found that it was about 40 to 60% red wiggler earthworms and eggshells. Wow. <laughs> and really beautiful black compost yeah. and amazing. So that compost could be used in a couple of great ways. It could be used to make actively aerated compost tea, which is a way of brewing mm -hmm compost and then using that nutrient on your soil and the other thing it could be used is mixed with other soil ingredients and used as spring starts so if you're doing your own starts for your garden uh, there's no weeds in that there's no weed seed in it right. it's basically pure because it's from kitchen waste and you can use that for your start so that's super lazy because one I didn't go outside very far it uh -huh. was very if it smelled bad it just needed more newspaper exactly and more carbon. And um, so I just continue to dump our scraps in there. And because we don't till here on the farm, we do broad fork. Um, and we don't use a tiller. We don't pulverize our soil here. We use a lot of mulch. So mm -hmm. around that that composter was my rose garden and a lot of mulch and the mushrooms that were oh, my my that space were just taking that nutrient passively out into my garden yeah. and as it moved out into my garden it just melted into the composter so there was no sifting of compost there was no opening the bin there was nothing I needed to do those mushroom systems uh, fungi were just taking it out in the garden and feeding my flowers and so that's nice. about as easy as I can get yeah <laughs> nice all right, so I asked. I actually asked you for three, but there's a there was yep. at least two in there. You got at least one more okay. for me. Oh sure, we got lots of lazy lazy farming um, ideas. We've got chop and drop. Oh yes, you mentioned that. Chop and dropping stuff. So that's yep. that's pretty lazy because we're not hauling uh, waste to the compost bin. We're mm -hmm. just staying right there with it. I also, when I cut up waste and say I've got too much of it to mulch with, I'll make stash piles. So those stash piles ah. are just like little corners and under large plants like squash, I'll actually put my compost there and just let it decompose very quickly in a mm -hmm. small pile. Um, so I don't believe in hauling anything to the big compost bin that I don't have to. If I can leave yeah. it in place, um, then I leave it so that I don't have to haul it back so scatter mixes is another one Ooh. I'll take a jar and I'll dump in a bunch of different seeds so the combination uh, is usually about small greens and salady things such as radishes carrots onions different types of lettuces 
uh, musculine mixes. There could be beets in there and a mi- spinach, Swiss chard, sometimes kale. Uh-huh. And I mix those all up. Right. I go to prepared ground and sprinkle that all over the paired prepared ground, scratch it in, water it, and then sometimes I'll poke in some bush beans just randomly through the bed for <laughs> nice fixing. Uh-huh. And when I come back, that has sprouted up into a whole layered little tiny forest. And the first thing I'm going to pull out of that little layered forest are the radishes as they come up in 21 days or so. Right. And eat those. And those leave little holes where things start to fill in and opens up the ground, the carrots sprout. The next thing that comes up is really edible is the, usually the spin and the musculine mixes and I'll be eating those the spinach will go through its cycle and be gone leaving more room for lettuce heads and they'll come up and I'll either cut and come again them or sustainably harvest them by only taking a few outer leaves from each of the different plants and as I hop around the garden doing that it really doesn't look like my garden has been eaten out of it kind of has a perpetual function in that as long as I forage and don't just cut the whole head off of something or don't pull up the whole beet, I will use beet greens for as Mm -hmm. long as I can before I take the beet out. So those, a stack of, of lazy potentials that could all be integrated with each other. Beautiful. Those were great. And I love this scatter mix. That's nice. So you also came up with the term cut and come again. Would you please tell us what that is? Yeah, a lot of the salad bag mixes that we're buying at the store are from a farming system called Cut and Come Again. And what is happening is you densely plant your lettuce and musculine mix and then uh, what we call baby greens when we buy them is mm-hmm. from a cut and come again system. So they literally go down the row with a machine that cuts sort of like a lawnmower a bit and it throws the, the greens into a basket which get washed and sold uh, to market in a mix. And what they're doing is they're able to cut it off right at the ground, an inch or so above the ground, and then it will come again. Mm -hmm. It will sprout up more lettuce leaves, and then they can cut that and perpetually keep baby greens at about six or eight inches tall. And they can do that depending on the temperature three, four, five times, depending on the mix. And, and so it's cut and come again, something you could be practicing in your garden as well. Yeah. And one of the ways that I do it is I'll just, I'll let it keep growing tall. I don't cut the whole thing off. I just take the leaves off around the base. So eventually the kale or lettuce is this tall, you know, this three foot tall lettuce tree with, you know, with a big long trunk and the lettuce at the top. And the wonderful thing about doing that is you can think of it as overstory trees while still planting something else yeah. underneath of it because yeah. you've opened up that eight inches on the ground and made it only like two inches because it's up above. And then if you want to, you can allow that lettuce to go to seed. And when it throws its seed all over, it really isn't taking up a lot of soil space because you've replanted underneath of it another level of, of greens. And then you have that seed throwing in the fall and in the spring you might come out to a whole diversity of salad Mm. that's coming up without you even doing a thing. There are so many things here at the urban farm that just come back year after year after year. So, so I love permaculture concepts and one of them, you, you kind of alluded to stacking functions. Can you tell us how you stack functions on your farm and what it is? So we did talk about quite a few different ways of stacking functions building soil by chop and drop at the same time 
that you're not hauling things away, um, mining nutrients, um, all these things happening simultaneously in the garden. So you're not working any harder than next than necessary. I think gardening in itself or working in your own personal landscape is a stacking function system anyway, because I exercise in my garden. I don't go to the gym. <laughs> right. And I believe food is medicine. So I grow herbs and flowers and food for myself in my garden, which I can eat fresh while all of its enzymatic properties are still available to my body. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm, me- I'm medicing myself by ha- having that landscape around my house. I have landscaping that is edible, so I don't have someone putting in a maple tree and a a row of shrubs. I Mm -hmm. have an apple tree and a row of blueberries. So it gives me mental health as I live inside of a beautiful, beautiful place. It allows me to have social interaction with people and have people over to dine in this beautiful place. I'm able to share the surplus of the food. I get a day's reward for a day's work instead of waiting for a paycheck in two weeks Mm. um, I see every day the reward of my hands so when I clear a bed out or plant something or pick or harvest or cook something that reward is instantaneous and as human beings I think we've always lived in a world like that until modern times and now we do work every day and we wait two weeks to a month to get a reward (laughs) that comes as a piece of paper or a digital response and then we have to go Put that into some form of joy that helps us have a feedback loop. And I think that in truth, we crave the need for instant feedback from our landscape and the work that we yeah. put in. So I think that stacks in creating your own personal ecosystem around your home. Mm-hmm. Not to mention, I don't buy cut flowers. I seldom go to the doctor. Um, it helps with digestive health and all the things that you might be struggling with can be bolstered up in your whole body yeah. health. So I think gardening is beautiful in that. And it does yeah. save money because it oh, seeds, yeah. to, seeds to food is very different. If you go buy um, a little bit of figs, you could be paying, you know, three or four or five dollars for some fresh figs and a fig tree is $15. So by the time you've bought three packages of figs, you could have put a fig tree in your backyard and <laughs> the same with the Go go check the price of apples and go right. if you pay twenty five dollars for a large apple tree and put it in your yard and in five years you have all the apples you need for the rest of your life. Or you can continue to buy apples at whatever price you pay for your apples mm-hmm. indefinitely. So if you've got the room, it almost doesn't make sense that we pay certain prices for our produce yeah. and then we look at what the price of seed or putting in a perennial plant is. And yes, you do have to wait and you may rent your home. But if you rented your home and you put in a fruit tree and you move to the next place and everyone else who rented put in a fruit tree, Mm -hmm. then everywhere you rented, there would be a fruit tree. (laughs) Nice. Nice. So stacking functions, uh, can you define that exactly what that is? Because you're speaking for the past three minutes about what it is. It jumped all around it and it was all stacking functions. Can you define <laughs> it can you define it in a sentence for us? Well, let's see. Stacking functions means accomplishing multiple goals by doing yeah. only one thing. Yeah. Perfect. So, if you go back and re-listen to the last 4 minutes, you will see how many times Katine stacked and threaded things in into her permaculture design. Great work, Katine. 
Thanks. Yeah. And I also like to say that we like to stack in time and in space. Oh, yes. Say, say more about that. So when we're stacking in time, we want to do things like harvest the radishes and then the spinach and then the lettuce, etc. So we want to look at stacking in time. If you have room for multiple fruit trees, you want to put in ones that are early, mid, and late harvest so that mm -hmm. you can extend that time. So looking at how we can stack our food in time or our work in time um, is really important. I teach multiple things here on site, and I am only one person in one place, so I end up moving people past me in time. So some days I'm working with one group and some days another group and some days I overlap two or three groups while I'm still teaching the same thing. Mm -hmm. So thinking about how we stack our time. Maybe you're outside and you're walking to your compost bin but while you're doing that you've collected eggs and you've mm. pulled a few weeds here mm -hmm. and there and you've grabbed the herbs and you've come in and done each of these things and you've stacked your time. You're still going to walk the same distance but you can do that. You can also stack in space and we talked a little bit about that when we were talking about the lettuce going up and going to seed, right. it's going to stack up in the air at a higher level while there mm -hmm. might be two or three different plants growing at different levels using up the same space, yeah. not only above ground with its leaf system all sharing sunlight and protecting the soil, but also below ground where you might have mm -hmm. carrots and beets and other things with different types of root systems. So lots of stacking in space, filling up all the space we have in our gardens and in our yards. Yeah is what creates the dynamic abundance and it's and the diversity it's also what makes a huge volume of nutrient dense food come out of a very small space wow so i i'm i'm really going to put you on the spot now because you've been doing so good what is your favorite permaculture principle or concept observe and interact observe and interact so the most important, Greg speaking here, my opinion, the most important thing that you can be doing in your space is observing. So thank you for saying that. Say more about that. Everything we learn comes from observation. Yeah. Even science has to observe their experiments in order to take in the information. And I think when we take a step outside of ourselves mm -hmm. and out of our human arrogance, our hubris, and all the things that we've learned from books or from others, and we sit down and look at the ecosystem around us, we look at the landscape, and we honor nature as a wise and functional system mm. that can teach us and who has really all of the answers. She's been doing this so much longer than <laughs> we have. Yeah. And the answers are there, and we find them through observation and then the second part of that is interaction. So stepping in and partnering, stepping in and saying, how can I mimic this? Mm -hmm. Stepping in and saying, I recognize the wisdom here. How can I be a part of this? And yeah. so that interaction part, I think, is equally as important as the observation. If we just observe and then do nothing, uh, we haven't really attained anything. Yeah. Wow. Brilliant. Thank you very much for that. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you learned from it. I fail every day. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, I set myself up to fail. Oh, nice. Um, and I believe in failing faster so I can learn more. Wow. Um, I just think that 
when we have a success and we try something, all we've learned is that one thing works. But when I fail something, I learn what doesn't work and I usually learn multiple things at once. Mm -hmm. When I first started shifting from being basically a gardener to a farmer and kind of increasing the size of the systems that I was working with, I began working with animals and animals are born, but they also die. Mm -hmm. And, um, I felt really catastrophic about my animals dying. And I was particularly, I work with Icelandic sheep and they're Mm. very smart Mm -hmm. and I get really close to them and make friends and we have a lot of dynamic interaction when something would die I would feel this epic failure Mm. that I'd somehow not learned enough to do what I'm doing and I made a decision early on that when something died that was in my care that I would learn something every single time and there was a particular time that I had a you that died and I just didn't have an explanation and I I started to carry guilt from that and and almost to the point of where I might have stepped away from animal husbandry. Wow. And um and then I stopped and I thought there's there's a opportunity here for me to learn and to be better at this. And if I step up and I refuse to let anything die that I don't learn something. So I went to the research and I figured out what was happening mm-hmm. and I stopped it from happening and I learned something that I can pass on to other people. Yeah. Here on the site because we have things being born and things dying, we talk a lot about that and about standing at the door of birth and standing at the door of death. Mm. And particularly with regard to domestic animals that are somewhat dependent on our function uh, as part of their function, that when we're breeding animals and when we're hosting them and caring for them, that part of it is that if you breed them, you're standing at the door of their birth and responsible Mm. for their care, Mm -hmm. and that equally empowering is standing at the door of death and making that a positive and an, an important thing. And with all the stress and drama we have right now around our food system and animal care, my passion is to close that loop for people and help them to connect with food systems and with animal systems and with animal husbandry and to be balanced and have both the joy of birth and the honor of death and to move through those things. And that's come from me failing many times and figuring out that I just have to keep going forward because it's worth mastering. Nice. So what do you consider your biggest success? This is off topic, but... That's all right. (laughs) My greatest success was teaching my three children to read. Mm. And which might not seem like a huge success to everyone, but I am a learning disabled adult. Uh And as a kid, I was diagnosed with ADD and ADHD and dyslexia. So I didn't learn to read until I was 12 years old and really had a lot of negativity around teachers Mm. and teaching and was something I was, I am never going to be a teacher, I would say. And I homeschooled my kids for 10 years. And during that time, I taught all three of them to read. And that was a really empowering time for me. And I realized that everyone has different types of learning styles. There's many types of intelligences. And as I, as I went through that process of teaching them to read, it was empowering. And I began to learn about different types of reading styles and learning styles and 
how people uh, have been treated in the educational system. If you don't fit into the mold, you just feel like you're unintelligent. And mm-hmm. and that's just such an unfair yeah. unfair situation for so many people. I'm a tactile learner, which permaculture suits me very well. Absolutely. Um, especially applied permaculture because I'm out in the landscape, I'm learning with my hands and it draws a lot of people that also felt like maybe they didn't do great in school. Yeah. But they're, they have great spatial intelligence and um, other types of intelligences. So it has really spurred me on to become a better teacher, to learn yeah. lots of teaching styles, to be patient, to um, ask a question or answer questions, even if they're asked many, many, many times, and to try to answer in different ways, to show people, to explain it, to draw it on a picture, and to continue to find a way until every student gets it. Yeah. Wow. I, yeah, as, as a youngster, I was labeled as if he would just imply himself, mm. he would do well. Now, I'm an, you know, a super achiever around so many things. School didn't fit for me back then. And it labeled yeah. me. And to this day, I still have this voice that shows up occasionally. I call it my stupid racket. It's, you know, it's, it starts talking to me about, well, who do you think you are that you can do that? And it's like, I just have to turn around and look at it and say, thanks for sharing. Now get the heck out of here. So Mm -hmm. I, I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. So what drives you? I love seeing that aha moment when people Mm -hmm. feel empowered around their food and teaching people to grow their own food and to partner with nature while doing it is so beautiful and so empowering that it is really the driving force right now for for what I'm doing. Um, People become sort of afraid of nature to step in or they're afraid of pathogens or things dying and that getting over that to where you feel like you're part of the system and how you can start working with it is so great. Um, because food is medicine, um, when we partner with nature and we own our food systems, it's empowering and it's yeah. healing. Perfect. So if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? That was a hard one for me. I had a couple of them, but I'm going to say that... Um, The Resilient Gardener by Carol Depp. Mm -hmm. Um, Food production and self-reliance in in uncertain times. And I loved that book because it sounded like my mom talking. Oh, right. (laughs) And um, her her view on the fact that life is not always stable and sometimes we lose jobs or we become injured or whatever, but um, having a food system that's resilient and holds us up during those times and having the knowledge to save our seed um, is really great. But I liked her balance with regard to, yes, you have a a vegetable garden that provides nutrient-dense foods, but what about your carbohydrates? What about your proteins? Mm Mm-hmm. And she was more holistic in looking at food from a rounded view of what nutrients we need. And carbohydrates can be one of the hard things to grow in our gardens to have enough for a whole year cycle because our spaces are small Mm -hmm. and carbohydrates can get kind of shoved aside. But they're really important to us being satisfied Mm food-wise and also how we create our proteins. And she talks a lot about birds and eggs and, and so that's a nice integrated system to have ducks and chickens in the garden and, mm-hmm. and how those dynamics can work. So I liked the resilient gardener because it was a nice full view of how our food is yeah. real. Nice. 
So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? I would say never stop learning. Hmm. And Just I can, keep learning. I can absolutely see that in who you are. My dad told me that a long time ago. He was also a learning disabled adult. Mm -hmm. I like to say a learning different adult. Yeah, thank you. For every disadvantage, there is an advantage. And mine was that I just kept memorizing everything um, because some of the writing and reading was difficult. And so I managed to memorize all the curriculum I've taught for all of these years. And then finally, in the last few years, I've been encouraged to start writing some of it down. Oh, in yeah, case you got to do that. <laughs> happens and I need it. But um, my dad just said, never stop learning. And mm-hmm. that's been a passion for me to just keep learning. And whether that's physical, tactile uh, learning, whether it's observation or whether it's reading books or exchanging information with other people, just keep learning. Go down those rabbit holes of knowledge that inspire you and keep learning. (laughs) Amen to that. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Katine. Thank you for having me. It's been really fun. Absolutely. So how can our listeners get a hold of you? They can go to the website we talked about earlier, the Mm -hmm. dirtrichschool.org. Mm-hmm. And they can also contact me at thedirtrichschool at gmail.com. And we can exchange through email. You can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash dirtrichschool. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Do you want to save money at the grocery store, eat more organic, whole foods, cultivate food security, and feel more connected to the earth? If so, then growing your own food is a no-brainer. You wouldn't believe how many people come to me claiming that they can't grow their own food. They think they don't have enough space, that they're too busy, or that they simply don't have what it takes. Perhaps you've fallen for one of these gardening myths. If you think you can't grow food, Or if you think the only food that you have access to is what you buy in the grocery store, I have a life-changing webinar that you need to see. It's free and will help you unearth your inner gardener. I've helped thousands of people just like you learn to grow their own food. And I'm speaking from my own experience when I say that with the right knowledge in place, there is no such thing as a black thumb. With this webinar, you can begin making your garden dreams come true and start growing delicious, nutritious food for your family. Just text GARDEN to 44222 or go to IWantToGarden.com and you will receive our free webinar about the seven key factors you need to know to grow your own food. Remember, that's GARDEN to 44222 or IWantToGarden.com. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. 
Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.